Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today on the Wings of Alliance for Natural Health, we will be discussing the role of processed, refined carbohydrates in our diet and the scourge of diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, and other chronic diseases. What led me down this path of discovery was the ever-increasing number of young people that I saw in my clinic practice with obesity, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and other scourges that should not be affecting young people or any patient for that matter. These are diseases that can be associated with disordered lifestyle practices such as poor eating choices and lack of exercise. Today we're going to be taking a tour of the macronutrient carbohydrate and learn how its singular role in overabundance in the standard American diet has led us down this path. Today, we will turn our attention to the recently most vilified macronutrient, carbohydrates. Currently, carbohydrates provide 40 to 60% of energy in the American diet. Glucose is the primary metabolic fuel in humans and all tissues in the human body. We are able to utilize glucose for energy production. Carbohydrates are the most abundant organic components in most fruits, vegetables, legumes, and cereal grains. And they, of course, are added to many processed foods to provide texture and flavor. Glucose serves as a precursor for synthesis of all the other carbohydrates, and these are found covalently bound in the body as glycoproteins, glycolipids, proteoglycans, meaning that they are added to or combined with proteins, lipids or fats, and other components. These complex molecules are important components of body fluids, the structural matrix, the supporting structure that's found in between the cells, membranes of the cells themselves, and even components of the cell surface to act as cell surface signaling molecules. Where do we get glucose for all of these uses? Well, we can eat it. It can be dietary carbohydrates or we can get it from body glycogen stores, or we can even make glucose from other non-glucose precursors. All of these sources provide for constant availability of glucose in the bloodstream, which has to be maintained within a very strictly regulated concentration range. You don't want glucose too high, you don't want it too low. And the liver plays the central role in glucose homeostasis, keeping that nice balance. Within the hepatocytes, the liver cells, glucose may be completely oxidized for energy or stored as glycogen or provide carbons for the biosynthesis of fatty acids or amino acids. So it provides those carbons in that carbon necklace that we talked about previously in making amino acids. Under conditions of low blood glucose, hepatocytes release glucose from the glycogen stores by degrading it, or as I mentioned, can synthesize glucose on its own. As many of you know, the mitochondria are extremely important for energy production through the citric acid cycle or the pentose phosphate shunt. And glucose may provide substrates 
that directly feed into glycolysis for the citric acid cycle or pentose phosphate shunt. In this way, energy is produced in our bodies. So you can see glucose is important. And we're going to talk about the differences between naturally occurring glucose in fruits and vegetables versus the kind of sugar that's added to processed foods. The carbohydrate content of a meal controls insulin production from the pancreas and glucagon concentrations. After a carbohydrate-containing meal, circulating blood glucose levels increase, and this is what stimulates insulin secretion from the beta cells of the pancreas. Through a series of enzymatic reactions, glycogen production is stimulated. And in comparison, when an individual enters the fasting state, circulating insulin levels decrease and the alpha cells of the pancreas respond by secreting glucagon and releasing glucagon, which allows glucose levels to rise in the bloodstream for ongoing energy production. Glycogen stores in the liver are limited. Alternate fuels arise, and this includes the ketone bodies that are formed in the ketogenic diet. This is a very simplistic description. I'd like to talk a little bit more about insulin. Insulin is produced by the pancreas in response to hyperglycemia and stimulates glucose use differently in various tissues. The tissues that remove glucose from circulation and impact glucose use the most are the skeletal muscles, the liver, and the adipose tissue, the fat tissue. In the skeletal muscle and adipose tissue, insulin stimulates glucose uptake by translocation of the GLUT4 glucose transporter to the cell surface. So this receptor gets swung out upwards on the outside of the cell surface and allows the glucose to be taken inside the cell. In the skeletal muscle and liver, insulin stimulates the synthesis of glycogen from glucose and inhibits gluconeolysis or the breakdown of glucose. In the liver, insulin also decreases hepatic gluconeogenesis, preventing an influx of more glucose into the bloodstream. So it's a very finely tuned balanced system. In the adipose tissue, insulin inhibits fat breakdown or lipolysis and stimulates glucose uptake. So the net effect of all these changes is to increase glucose uptake, reduce circulating glucose levels, and increase the conversion of glucose into the storage molecules, glycogen or fat. I'd like to talk a little bit about insulin resistance. And this is really what's important in this discussion. People that have ongoing high levels of glucose intake or processed carbohydrate intake often over time overstimulate the pancreas and the beta cells. This very elegant process becomes dysregulated and the insulin is no longer as effective. And we'll be talking about this more in a little bit. But I do want to tell you that this leads to something called insulin resistance. So in insulin resistance, Adipose tissue, muscles, and liver cells do not respond appropriately to the insulin signal. So the insulin is circulating, but it's not working as well. And as a result, the glucose that's circulating in the bloodstream as well 
those levels remain high. And eventually this leads to pathology. And this is exacerbated by dysregulation or deregulation of the feedback mechanisms. For all of you who are healthcare practitioners, it is important to educate our patients about carbohydrates and choices in eating patterns. Letting them share in the discussion about dietary choices makes an informed patient and an active partner in the change. There is a continuum from insulin resistance to metabolic syndrome. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is a hepatic manifestation of metabolic syndrome. Its rising prevalence parallels the rise in obesity and diabetes. It's historically thought to result from overnutrition and a sedentary lifestyle. However, recent evidence suggests that diets high in sugar, either from sucrose and or high fructose corn syrup, not only increase the risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but also non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. There is experimental evidence as well as clinical evidence that fructose precipitates fat accumulation in the liver. And this is due to increased lipogenesis or the, the manufacture of fat and impaired fat oxidation in the liver. Recent evidence suggests that the predisposition to fatty liver is linked to the metabolism of fructose by fructokinase C, which results in ATP consumption nucleotide turnover, and uric acid generation that mediate this fat accumulation. Other concerning changes are also seen in that there is increased gut permeability, or that is opening of the gut and proteins and other things leak out of the gut, uh, changes in the microbiome, those good bacteria that reside in the gut, and associated endotoxemia, so there's increase of some of this stuff exiting the gut, getting into the portal circulation or the blood supply to the liver from the gut. And this contributes to the increased risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Early clinical studies suggest that reducing sugary beverages and total fructose intake, especially from added sugars in uh, prepared foods, may have a significant benefit on reducing hepatic fat accumulation. I want to give a nod to the glycemic index. This is an inherent property of carbohydrate-containing foods and beverages, and it standardizes the amount of individual foods, and they usually base this on about 50 grams of available carbohydrates. The glycemic index is a relative ranking from 0 to 100, describing the rate and extent to which these carbohydrates, as they digest and are absorbed, release glucose into the bloodstream. The glycemic index is a relative ranking of carbohydrates in foods according to how they affect blood glucose levels. Carbohydrates with a low glycemic index are more slowly digested and absorbed and metabolized and cause a lower and slower rise in blood glucose and therefore associated insulin spikes. So this could be anything from your apple or some of your vegetables that will release glucose into the bloodstream. So this is a very slow process in natural products, in natural foods. But when you eat in comparison some cookies or muffins, 
there's a rapid spike in the blood glucose. However, the speed of digestion is only part of the story. Quantity counts as well. So how high the blood glucose elevates and how long it remains elevated depends on both the amount of carbohydrate in the food or drink, as well as its glycemic index. So the researchers from Harvard University came up with a term to describe this speed and quantity, and that's called the glycemic load. So you'll hear these terms used. It's generally what they mean. There has been rising concerns about the prevalence of highly processed carbohydrate foods that predominate in the American diet and how these contribute to the rise in obesity and obesity-related diseases. What's happened is this process in the baking industry has disrupted and removed plant cell wall material or dietary fiber. This occurs in many types of processed carbohydrates and breakfast cereals. So this results in the loss of their original complement of micronutrients and the starch and sugar components are often made easily digestible. This is not desirable because it leads to an elevated glycemic response, especially in those with diabetes or features of the metabolic syndrome. In contrast, there is evidence that greater consumption of slow-release carbohydrates is likely to be associated with health benefits. So again, that increase in the fruits and vegetables in the diet, the whole foods. I want to highlight a study that I read that is causing concern, and that is in individuals without diabetes, even moderate elevations in that postprandial or after-the-meal blood glucose can place metabolic and oxidative stress on the pancreatic beta cells and in the whole cardiovascular system itself. And this is a potential increased risk for type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Therefore, it is of interest to quantify the effects of dietary carbohydrate on glycemic response in food. I discussed metabolic syndrome, but I didn't really define it. And I want to talk about this transition in a more modern understanding of diet in its relationship to chronic disease. The science of obesity in more educated circles is shifting away from the simplistic idea of energy balance and calorie counting with a new research focus on the effects of food and the diet patterns on complex physiologic pathways. And what I'm trying to say is that it isn't just calories in, calories out. It's more of what happens when you eat good quality foods in the diet and what its effect is on your metabolism and growth and other more complex pathways. A poor quality diet associated with increase in processed foods, fast foods, results in a loss of nutrients and fiber, and this includes polyphenols, minerals, essential fatty acids, those good fats, vitamins, and other bioactive food ingredients. Poor diet quality is a driver of excess dietary intake, which in turn influences the metabolic risk and the increase in abdominal adiposity or that midline fat. Independent of calories, poor dietary quality strongly influences metabolic dysfunction and drives the increased risk of diabetes. With an increase in processed carbohydrates and simple sugars, 
These diets contribute to insulin dysregulation and insulin resistance over time. I'm going to speak to my role as a physician now and what I learned in medical school in terms of discussing dietary intake with patients, it was really negligible, as you've heard me say before. And patients need education and helpful dietary choices. But sadly, the research shows that the public considers physicians to be one of the most trusted sources of nutrition-related information, yet physicians and some other healthcare providers lack core competency to properly counsel and educate patients about nutrition and diet-related disease. Additional barriers beyond education and instituting these goals in conventional medical encounter includes the shrinking time that physicians and other practitioners have with patients and the increased electronic health record burdens. And this leaves little room for discussion of diet and lifestyle interventions. Well, let me discuss metabolic syndrome. The central features of metabolic syndrome are insulin resistance, that insulin isn't working very well once it's excreted, visceral adiposity, and that's fat inside the abdomen around the organs, atherogenic dyslipidemia, so that's cholesterol dysregulation, and endothelial dysfunction. Endothelial dysfunction can lead to hypertension. It's not very commonly understood that this increased glucose or high fructose corn syrup and the insulin dysregulation that occurs can lead to all of these abnormalities, including high cholesterol and hypertension. It's very concerning when you think about it, that we really haven't linked up these abnormalities with the high carbohydrate containing diets. So insulin resistance is identified by fasting glucose and elevated insulin. And this can be drawn, the insulin can be drawn along with the fasting glucose and should be asked for when you speak with your conventional practitioner. There are various measurements within conventional medicine to identify insulin resistance. And this is often looking at the level of plasma insulin and measuring the central waistline, uh, waist circumference, and looking at fasting glucose levels, which everyone is pretty familiar with. However, it isn't often discussed that triglycerides are a very important marker. I would highly recommend that triglycerides be considered a mark of hyperinsulinemia and metabolic syndrome. Another common feature is that the high-density lipoprotein cholesterol or HDL cholesterol is generally low in the face of insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. I'd like to talk for a minute about endothelial dysfunction. And this is the final common pathway between many cardiovascular risk factors and the development of atherosclerotic vascular disease. Endothelial cells line the surface of the blood vessels and serve important mechanical as well as biological functions. The endothelium senses and responds to physiologic and pathologic stimuli and produces vasoactive substance including, for example, nitric oxide, prostacyclin, and endothelins. 
Endothelial expression of cell adhesion molecules governs interactions with the circulating white blood cells, leukocytes and monocytes, and this affects inflammation. And then there is a call for the circulating platelets to come, and this affects hemostasis and thrombosis clot formation. The endothelium also modulates the response of vascular smooth muscles underneath that initial layer, which may contribute to intimal formation during the development of atherosclerotic plaques. Normal endothelial function protects against these processes, and endothelial dysfunction is central to the pathogenesis of the atherosclerotic vascular lesion. Another key feature is the production of endothelial-derived nitric oxide synthase. I don't want to leave this discussion without highlighting visceral obesity, that fat around the midline that's underneath the muscle layer inside deep in the abdomen. This causes a decrease in insulin-mediated glucose uptake, so it's actually exacerbating insulin resistance. The mechanism for this probably involves something called adipokines, which are made by adipose tissue, that fat tissue, that modulates crosstalk between metabolism and vascular function. Well, let's go back to the diet. So according to the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, there's increase in the consumption of processed high glycemic load carbohydrates, and this produces hormonal change that promote calorie deposition in the adipose tissue, exacerbates hunger, and lowers energy expenditure. So it really is doing a triple whammy here. It's causing increased fat stores. It's making us more hungry. And it's actually telling us to sit on the couch and not move very much. So three very bad messages. I do want to highlight that there is criticisms of this uh, theory. It does... I think need to be discussed. So overeating does cause obesity and obesity is typically associated with somewhat elevated circulating glucose and fatty acid levels. But there are some populations that consume high carbohydrates diets with low obesity prevalence and those are predominantly the rice dependent cultures. However, these cultures do have an increased risk to type 2 diabetes. If anyone would like the reference list I have for any of these things that I've said, I would be happy to share that if you want to email me at theartandsoulofhealing.com. I'd like to go back to the mitochondria, those dynamic organelles that have many roles, and this includes mediating oxidative stress along with our energy production. And of course, with this oxidative stress, there's a cellular redox state. This allows for the generation of signaling molecules. Some research seems to show that mitochondria have a role in governing metabolism and appear to be altered in insulin resistance. Inflammation is probably the mediator of this, and it's likely caused by insulin resistance. Inflammation is likely the link between insulin resistance and mitochondrial dysfunction. There's something called the inflammasome. It has been recently associated with abnormalities in the mitochondria and insulin resistance. 
there is something that we have not discussed, and that's the hemoglobin A1C laboratory test. When there is ongoing increased glucose in the bloodstream and insulin resistance, the glucose molecule becomes adherent to the hemoglobin molecule. And this has often been described as something similar seen in the baking process, the Maillard reaction. It's a chemical reaction between amino acids and reducing sugars. Examples are seen in fried dumplings, cookies, biscuits, breads, etc., where glucose or sugar molecules adhere to the protein in the baking process and produce that nice browned effect. This is not a good thing to happen to the hemoglobin molecule, and actually it's happening to a lot of the other proteins throughout the body, including the eye and kidneys and other tissues. There was a 2019 report that showed a moderate macronutrient shift by substituting the carbohydrates with more protein and fat for six weeks, reduced hemoglobin A1c and hepatic fat content in weight-stable individuals with type 2 diabetes. It was a small trial, but it was rigorously controlled, but certainly needs repeating. Well, what do we see in patients that have insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome? So the nutrition physical examination is very important. And you've heard me discuss the bioelectric impedance analysis previously, but it's good to look at the comparison of the total body fat and where that fat is distributed and also look at body water. Skin changes include acanthosis nigricans or multiple poorly demarcated plaques. And these are gray to dark brown hyperpigmented plaques. This is felt to be related to the hyperinsulin state and this activates insulin growth factor receptors on carotenocytes and fibroblasts. And this causes cell proliferation resulting in this skin change. The benign fibromas are sometimes seen. These are fibroepithelial polyps or skin tags. These are benign, soft, pedunculated growths that vary in size and can occur singularly or in groups. The most common site for these to form are the neck, axilla, and the periorbital regions, that is the areas around the eyes. These are the most frequently involved, although the other areas can be affected. These skin tags can be seen in the general population, but are much more prevalent in those with increased weight, increased age, and in women. Other changes include nails, skin infections, thrush, among other findings. The diagnosis of type 2 diabetes is very well described in the literature and has been for a number of years. You will find on the Department of Laboratory Medicine at the National Institutes of Health the current recommended testing guidelines for establishing the diagnosis of diabetes. Other tests do not fall into these guidelines but are available through accredited labs such as fasting insulin levels, and HOMA-IR, which is a calculated value. The HOMA-IR is a homeostatic model assessment for insulin resistance. 
and it approximates insulin resistance. As I said, it's calculated. Since this disease process is a continuum, it's best to monitor insulin resistance in the early stages to stave off type 2 diabetes and other chronic ill health. Therefore, it is recommended that laboratory testing include other non-standard or non-recommended laboratory tests. HOMA-IR is a shortcut for estimating insulin resistance, and it has been examined in multiple studies and shown to be of value. Another useful tool is the evaluation of postprandial glucose concentrations and insulin levels. This may point to suboptimal glycemic control, and it's one of the earliest abnormalities of glucose homeostasis associated with metabolic syndrome. I'd like to end this discussion with dietary fiber. On packaged food labels, you'll often find dietary fiber lumped with carbohydrates. Dietary fiber is a heterogeneous group of compounds consumed from a variety of plant food sources. Existing research has focused on total fiber intake and suggests an inverse association between total fiber and body weight. Limited studies have considered the food sources of fiber. Where there is evidence, studies have observed differential benefits of fiber intake from cereals, fruit, vegetable sources, and its effect on obesity and cardiometabolic health outcomes. But what is fiber? Most dietary fiber is not digested in the GI tract or absorbed, so it stays within the, inside the intestine where it modulates the digestion of other foods and affects the consistency of the stool. There are two types of fiber, each of which is thought to have its own benefits. So there's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Soluble fiber consists of a group of substances that is made up mostly of carbohydrates, and this dissolves in water. So examples of foods that contain soluble fiber include fruits, oats, barley, and legumes such as peas and beans. But insoluble fiber comes from plant walls, plant cell walls, and does not dissolve in water. Example of foods that contain insoluble fiber include wheat, rye, and other grains. The traditional fiber wheat bran is a type of insoluble fiber. So dietary fiber is the sum of these two, the insoluble and soluble fiber. The soluble fiber accounts for the reason that fiber is often linked to carbohydrates when looking at food labels. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons now why you should be eating a high fiber diet. And that is a diet very high in natural fruits, vegetables, and grains that are tolerated. So insoluble fiber has been recommended to treat digestive problems such as constipation, hemorrhoids, chronic diarrhea, and fecal incontinence. Fiber bulks the stool, making it softer and easier to pass. Fiber helps the stool pass regularly, although it is not a laxative. Soluble fiber, on the other hand, such as psyllium or pectum, can reduce the risk of coronary artery disease and stroke by up to 40 to 50 percent. This is compared to a low-fiber diet. Soluble fiber also reduces the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. In people who have diabetes, both type 1 and 2, Soluble fiber can help control blood glucose levels. 
The consumption of fiber derived from grains has a protective effect against the development of type 2 diabetes. In addition, increased fiber intake may also be beneficial in controlling blood glucose in patients with established diabetes. I would like to highlight some of the recent research that shows the link between fiber and the GI tract microbiota. As many of you already know, the human gastrointestinal tract microbiota is one of the most densely populated microbial communities on Earth. It contains highly diverse microbial communities that provide metabolic, immunologic, and protective functions that play a crucial role in human health. It's very important for us to have a diverse population of gut bacteria. One of the most important key environmental factors that mediates the composition and that diversity of the GI tract microbiota is the diet. In fact, consumption of specific dietary ingredients such as fiber and the prebiotics are really an essential way by which the microbiota can be modulated. The human GI tract enzymes are not able to digest these complex carbohydrates and plant polysaccharides. Instead, these components are metabolized by the very microbes that we need. It's their food and what they give us back in return is the production of short-chain fatty acids such as acetate, propionate, and butyrate. These short-chain fatty acids are highly protective to the lining of the GI tract, and some research seems to point to its benefit in keeping the lining of the GI tract healthy and free from polyps. Appropriate levels of fiber intake are also associated with really good health outcomes, including impacting type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. However, despite increases in recommended values for fiber, most of the population in first world countries consume considerably less fiber than they should. So what are the recommendations? Currently, it's recommended in the United States to get between 25 to 30 grams of fiber per day. However, most consumers in first world countries are getting markedly less than that some as low as 10 to 15 grams of fiber per day. This brings us to the question of how do we get this amount of fiber in our diet? And it brings us back to the Mediterranean diet or a plant-based diet, which is high in fiber intake. That's not a vegetarian diet. It's not a vegan diet. It's just a diet that's lower in processed foods and higher in whole foods we've taken a tour of the standard American diet that is high in processed foods, high in carbohydrates, high in simple sugars, and it's leading to adverse health outcomes and a lot of chronic disease. I'm not asking you to go on a high-protein diet or a ketogenic diet, but rather asking you to look at your plate during a meal and decide if there is a half a plate of unprocessed fruits and vegetables, with predominantly vegetables, some protein, a balance of good fats, and a moderation of some healthy grains. I would like to conclude by comparing processed food to whole foods. Americans are currently overexposed to products that are high in calories, saturated unhealthy fats, 
simple sugars, and salt. And the United States packaged food supply and beverage supply in 2018 was ultra-processed and generally unhealthy. Since about 80% of Americans' total calorie consumption comes from store-bought foods and beverages, packaged and unpackaged, the food and beverage supply plays a central role in the development of chronic disease, including obesity and cardiovascular disease. We will explore how these choices impact our future. The New York Times journalist Michael Moss spent three and a half years working out how big food companies get away with developing products that undermine the health of those who eat them. Moss wrote a very telling book called Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. He interviewed hundreds of current and former food industry insiders, not just chemists, nutrition scientists, but also behavioral biologists, food technologists, marketing executives, package designers, chief executives, and even their lobbyists. What he uncovered is a hard-working industry composed of well-paid, smart, personable professionals, all focused on keeping us hooked on ever more ingenious junk food, an industry that thinks of us not as customers or even consumers, but as potential heavy users. As Moss explains, the exact formulations of addictive junk foods and drinks are not accidental but calculated and perfected by scientists who knew very well what they were doing. Their job is to establish the necessary bliss point, the precise amount of sugar, fat, and salt guaranteed to send consumers over the moon, in quotes. Sugar with its high-speed blunt assault on our brains is the methamphetamine of processed food ingredients, while fat is the opioid a smooth operator whose effects are less obvious but no less powerful. Without salt, he observes, processed foods would cease to exist. Many people are waking up to the fact that our food is killing us. Even though big food is made aware that consumers are beginning to become more unhappy, they are refusing to budge from the practices that have hooked the world on processed foods. And unfortunately, the fast food casual dining locations are attracting more and more investors. This market segment is not contracting, in spite of the growing research base pointing to the association of this type of food and the rising incidence of chronic disease. It's up to us consumers to rise up and stop spending our money on packaged, processed, unhealthy foods. It's time for us to step away from unhealthy food addiction and rewire our brains to accept and find pleasure in good, unprocessed, healthy whole foods. Will you join me? Thank you so much for joining me on the Art and Soul of Healing. And a special thanks to the Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms and making discussions like this available to all people. Check out AllianceForNaturalHealthUSA.org and become a member today. 